Good evening. Today's scripture is John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good afternoon, good evening. Good afternoon, good evening, brothers and sisters. Amen, amen. I don't know if you guys saw the clip this week of the new Department of I don't know, Housing Authority, the older black lady came up to the podium at the, at the White House, and she said, good afternoon, and nobody said anything to her, she went like this, and they gave it to her. Good afternoon, good afternoon, guys. Thank you. I appreciate you. Let me just get my timer here because I am in the business of not wasting time. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, wherever you're watching, uh, if you're watching tomorrow morning or you're here this afternoon, I'd like to say just thank you for coming. Thank you for participating in worship. Thank you for giving your time uh, to the Lord in this way. Uh, before I start, there's a couple of things. Actually, there's one thing I would like to kind of at least bring you up to speed. Dave was, Dave was kind to share a couple of things that are happening on Easter weekend. Um, one of the things that is happening on Easter weekend on that Friday, Good Friday, after we do the communion service between 3 and 7 in the afternoon, at 7 p.m. that night, I'm going to challenge you as a church, as a people, as a city, uh, we are going to do something that we're trusting the Lord is going to work. Amen? How many of you guys like to pray? I'm not trying to shame nobody, right? <laughs> how many of you, how many feel like you need prayer? Oh, okay. Amen. Um, we need to pray for each other. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our church. We need to pray for just different things that are happening around the world, around our city. Uh, so here is a challenge. Here, here is what the Lord laid on our heart, hearts as a leadership team. We are going to pray as a church for 24 straight hours. I didn't hear Amen. Uh, so we will set up a Zoom link, right? Is how it's going to work. 
We'll set up a Zoom link. There will be prayer leaders in every hour. So from 7 p.m. on Friday to 7 p.m. on Saturday, we will send out the link so you can sign up as a prayer leader or a participant, right? So the link will be open. When your hour comes up, you log on, and there will be other people on that, on that, on that Zoom call, and you will pray. I will give you, we will have a list of things for you to pray for. Feel free to add whatever you want to pray for in that hour. But I, I highly recommend if you are a member of Redemption Tucson, that you give an hour, maybe 12, to pray. Log on. You can be on your walk. You can be on your bike. Log on, and let's pray together. So all those hours are covered, and we are going to pray to God and then see what he does. Amen? Is Jenny the only one here today? Thank you. Let me open in a word of prayer, and we'll get to the word of God. Father God, you are so, so wonderful. You are so good. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Lord, we give ourselves to you this, this afternoon, morning, wherever we are. We ask that you search our hearts. Let your word do what it does. Let the seeds do what they do in our lives. Lord, I pray that you use me as just a mouthpiece to bring your word. Uh, I'm so grateful. I'm so humbled. I am so afraid um, to be preaching the word of God. Lord, may my vulnerability just show in front of all these people. Not about me. It's about you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the reasons my family and I pulled up stakes and left Colorado to come to Tucson, even though it was very difficult for us to leave, uh, we saw and we noticed the, the, the way redemption does preaching, which is a commitment to expository preaching, which, which is you know, something that uh, some churches do, which you preach the Bible verse by verse, and you walk through books of the Bible instead of what's called topical preaching. There's nothing wrong with topical preaching, but you pick topics and you, and, you, and you preach from different things, right? That's different. But when you're walking through the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, that's expository preaching. I was encouraged to see that that was being done here, and it made my transition even easier. Uh, when a church or a pastor preaches through a book, I got to tell you, right, with this expository preaching, it can get a little bit hairy, right? A lot of the stuff in the Bible is not G-rated. You understand what I'm saying, right? But it is, you know, you're, you're, sometimes you're preaching through names, or you're preaching through narratives, or you're preaching through this. And you're concerned at what you're feeding your people. What you're feeding your people is a steady diet of the, the, the Word of God, right? So I will not stand here and, and preach from the New York Times, the Miami Herald, or San Francisco Chronicle, any of those newspapers, right? What I will do is preach from the Word of God. And you can trust that I have spent the time in the Word this week to bring it to you so that you are benefiting from, from what we have. All right. So... I say that because it seems like last week we were in the same story, right, where Jesus is having a confrontation with the religious leaders of the time. They are, they are going back and forth, and Jesus is trying to tell them that he is, in fact, God, and he is who he says he is. And they are really unconvinced, and they don't have an ear to hear or ears to hear what he is saying. So this, this next section of, of, that was so beautifully read. Where is she? Man, that was really good. Thank you. Um, 
this next section continues kind of in that vein of, of Jesus going back and, and explaining some things to them, and they're having accusations towards Jesus. And they're standing in front of a crowd. They're in the midst of a group of people. And it's like, I can just picture, if you can picture yourself just sitting there looking, and Jesus would say one thing, and the crowd would go, well, what are you guys going to say? And the crowd, they would say something, and the crowd's like, well, Jesus, what are you going to say? How are you going to respond to that, right? It takes me back to a time when I was in high school. See, you got you to gotta understand, when I came to this country, I came, I was, it was March, and that, that September, I went right into high school. It's, it's, a, it's a great transition from middle to high school and when you're an American, just normally, right? But when you come from halfway across the world, your accent is so thick, you don't have the necessary clothes, and, and you, you don't know your schedule, you don't know anything, you don't know how to work a lock or nothing, Jesus Lord. I mean, and you just, you just get put into a high school, and it's just like, oh, what just happened? So I came into a culture... In the lunchroom, that's, that's a whole situation, right? I came into the culture in the lunchroom, and I came into something called Jonin. You guys may not know it because you live out west, but it's something that happens in Maryland on the East Coast. Here's how it works, right? Don't do it to your kids. People will, well, two people will start having an argument or a confrontation, and they will start talking about each other's clothing, and they will start talking about your mama, or they will start talking about your shoes or your, your grades or what car you drove that dropped you off at school, or you ride the bus, or you're on free lunch, and Jonan can get really hard. You understand? I was at the uh, at the at the receiving end of a lot of these jokes. Right? Um, I remember I was talking to Dave about this, and Dave can understand. I, Timberland boots was a big deal when I was. It probably still is. Right? It was a big deal, and and and. And I was like, man, I really wanted some Tims. I really wanted some Tims. And my folks couldn't afford any Tims. So they got me some boots, right? And, and the boots were ponies. <laughs> Pony brand. I don't know what ponies are, but they were, they were there. And I got joned on from my ponies, right? What is happening here is what is happening in this passage. The Pharisees are bringing what's called my English teacher or my professor would call an ad hominem attack. Anybody with you? Anybody hear me? Right? An ad hominem attack is you don't attack, when you're having a, an, a confrontation, you don't attack the person's positions or ideas. You attack their, you, their personality or how they look. You understand? The Pharisees, they're, they're not, they, they can't get up to Jesus' to Jesus' level to argue theology or to talk about what he's saying or his, his rightness and his, his, his claim to deity. Instead, they start, they start throwing just, oh, you have a big head type of stuff, right? <laughs> they, start, they start ad hominem. They start doing kind of things like that, right? So I'm going to walk through their accusations at first, right? They accuse him of being a Samaritan, his, his racial identity. They accuse him it, of being not being God, they attack his deity, and then they talk about his age, right? They don't, they don't have anything else. Well, you're not old enough. What argument is that, right? You're not old enough. Uh, how can you say you were here when Abraham was? But we'll get into that this, this, this morning or this afternoon. Um, here we go. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and meet me, right? In, um, in John chapter 8, verse 48. Verse 48 says this, Then the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Right? They're saying, not only is Jesus a Samaritan, but he also has a demon. Jesus, you cannot be, Jesus is not demon-possessed. They don't have anything else left. 
to, to accuse them of, right? They're saying, who are you? Tell us who you are. The Pharisees are just, they're just throwing stuff and, and hoping that something sticks because they're embarrassed. They have nothing else left, right? They are, and Jesus says, wait a minute. I'm not, come on, man. I'm not demon-possessed. I am not, I'm not demon-possessed because I am obedient to my Father, right? You are rejecting me, right? This means if you reject me, you are also rejecting the Father. Because in those days, when, when, when someone would send a messenger, when someone brought a message, right? If you rejected the messenger, you are re, you're rejecting the author of the message. So Jesus is bringing a message to them, and they are rejecting him, thereby rejecting God. Do you understand? I know nowadays we say, don't kill the messenger, right? Jesus is not saying that. He's saying, hey, you are rejecting me. That means you are rejecting God. Usually that meant war. When a king sent an emissary with a message to another king and he rejected the messenger, that, that message is clear going back that I am hostile to you. So what they are really saying is I am, we are hostile to God. And then Jesus says, I'm not trying to glorify myself here, you guys. I need you to hear me. If you're doubting me, you're doubting God. Let me ask you this this afternoon. Do you doubt God? In so many ways, one of my mentors says to me, he says, that, that the bigger your island of knowledge, the bigger your shoreline of doubt. This is why God doesn't show us sometimes the complete picture of life. If he shows up everything, right, if we have so much knowledge, we have so much doubt, right? They, Jesus is giving them things, and they're like, I don't know, man. Not only are they saying, I don't know, they're saying, I, we reject this message, right? There have been a couple of times in my life when I doubted God, and I, I shared this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to share it again. Uh, there was one moment when I was 12 years old. It was my birthday, my 12th birthday, 1991. I was laying there. I had malaria, my fever. I don't know what number it was, but it was pretty high. We, I didn't have the money. We didn't have the money for me to go to the hospital, and I had malaria. And I'm sitting there, and I'm sweating, and I'm laying on the couch. I can't tell if it's sweat or tears. And I, at this point, I know I'm an orphan, and I just don't have anything. And I'm, and I'm doubting God. A few months later, I get the letter from my brother who's behind enemy lines and hiding behind rubble lines, and he's able to sneak me a letter to another country. And when I get the letter, I open the letter, I look at the letter, and on the front of it is the handwriting that I recognize. And I open the letter, I'm so excited, and I start to read the letter, and I hear, our father was killed, and you're an orphan, and you've been an orphan since August 24th, 1990. And I doubt God. And I doubt God. I start to doubt his identity, like his omnipresence, his everlasting love. I start to doubt God. I start to doubt that maybe he doesn't really care for me. You understand? When we, when we, when we, when we get to doubting God, we get to accusing God, right? We, 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 start, we start trying to find ways. God, this, my problem is such a huge lift for you. I'm going to go ahead and do it myself, right? You start to doubt. You're not God. I don't think you're capable of healing this. Is this part of your plan, oh, Lord? Does, do you really care right now? I'll tell you what creeps in, right? We know that cynicism starts to creep in. Our prayer lives dry up. I'm not making a plug for the prayer time. I'm just telling you, right? <laughs> our prayer lives dry up, and our strategies start to come in, right? We doubt. We doubt his pedigree. I can do it myself. In your fear, you lose your place. 
you're afraid that you might lose your place in this life. You're afraid that you might lose something by depending on God. You're afraid. It is what happens. Fear then sometimes drives anger. This is what's going on with the Pharisees. Take it from someone who's lost everything before. God restores and he redeems. Deep down, when we're fearful and in constant need for reassurance in life, more importantly, in death, let me cover this, verse 51. Jesus, Jesus says, I'm not a demon. And then he goes into verse 51 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is not the answer they're looking for. They're looking for him to say, of course I'm not a Samaritan. Of course I don't have a demon. But he goes in another direction. He says, he will never see death. Anyone. If you're a Bible circular highlighter, this is a word, anyone. Anyone applies to you in Tucson today. Anyone. Anyone who keeps my word will never see death. So Jesus answers them in that way. Now, here's their accusations. You are not God. You're not this. You're not that. You're a Samaritan. Here is Jesus' response. Jesus doesn't respond in defending himself. He actually responds with promises. One of the promises is you will never taste death, right? He, he goes into saying that if anyone keeps my word, right, if this is you, you will never see death. Every once in a while, I haven't had that incident in this city, but in, in, in other places I've had this incident where I would, I would run into someone who believes a little differently about Jesus, who doesn't quite understand, at least in, in the way I understand who Jesus is, or they haven't been exposed to the promises of Jesus in a sense, right? And they will say to me, and I, I just, you just ask them point, point hey, what do you, who do you think Jesus is? And they will say to me something like, oh, Jesus is an awesome dude. Right? He was a great teacher. He did all these miracles. Right? He, 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 he did all of these things. But here's the, here's the truth about Jesus. See, moral teachers and good people can't guarantee you that you won't die. I've had a lot of teachers in my life, but they've, they've never been able to guarantee me that I will never taste death. So why don't you follow him? C.S. Lewis, uh, I was talking to somebody last week or a couple weeks ago, they were still reading Mere Christianity. If you haven't read that book, you need to read it. C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus Christ. He says, all these things that Jesus talks about, about guaranteeing that you will not taste death, he said, if Jesus was who he said he was, or he was not, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. Let me read you a quote from the book. He says, "Jesus, this is C.S. Lewis talking. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, referring to Jesus. I am, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or even something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with some with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Right? Christ is either he's either he's either really deceived mankind with a conscious fraud, or he is completely divine. It's inescapable. He's either who he said he is, or he's not. I must not be preaching to my daughter is crying. <laughs> so who do you say he is? Your answer to this, ladies and gentlemen, Tucson, redemption, determines if that promise applies to you. Your answer to this gives you access to the promise. We all have, or some of us do anyway, the fear, the hesitancy about death. That cold, clutching hand, the inevitable that's going to happen to all of us, right? We will all, at one point in our lives, if, if, if Jesus doesn't tarry, be the guest of honor at a funeral, right? But Jesus is saying, you as a person will never taste death. You will live forever. That is a high claim, ladies and gentlemen. It is the greatest human fear that we all have, right? That's the reason I put on my seatbelt. That's the reason I go to the dentist. That's the reason I take showers, ultimately, if you follow what I'm saying. That's the reason I don't jump out in the street. That's the reason I go to sleep on time, because I don't want to die. You follow me? All right. Jesus is saying, you will never taste death. You will never taste death. Who has that kind of authority? Only the creator and the sustainer of life. Right? See, at death, at death, we are separated from, from what we know and what we don't know. When last, I should share this. Two years ago, I did a, I did a, I did a funeral for a girl. Oh, man. I, I, she came to church for the first time on Mother's Day, May 11th. That Wednesday, I had lunch with her. She was shot and killed that Wednesday night. I did her funeral two weeks later. Listen, she's laying there, and there is a sense. You can see the separation between the body and who, what made her who she was, like her spirit. What, what makes you who you are? What's, what's in you, your personality? The body's there, but the spirit is gone, right? It's a, it's a sense of incompleteness. We all feel it. If you haven't been to a funeral or you've had someone die, you know what I'm talking about, right? The body may still be there, but what makes you you is no longer. Jesus is talking about that thing. What makes you you will never die. We can work all we want, like this said, but but trying to prolong prolong our, our our prolong our earthly bodily life, and it's good, right? It's good to eat good, man. I know I love beets and I love those things. I know it's gonna keep me alive, right? Is it? <laughs> right? But we live in a culture now where ultimately that fear is more pronounced. Right? There is a fear and, and anxiety. There is the, the amount of anxiety around human, our human existence, whether it's just us, our whole family, or our whole, or our whole society. 
you're afraid of something, right? If you pay attention to culture, you know this. I see leaders now pouring out and, and, and telling us how we can tame our anxieties, you know, around where society is going. Everybody is offering some kind of hope. Everybody is offering something. If you do this, right, your outlook will be different. If you do that, your outlook will be different. I was reading Outreach Magazine, which is a Christian magazine that comes out, and it talks about, you know, churches, what churches are doing around the country, pastors are, you know, giving uh, articles here and there. And I, I, it caught my interest this week because I was Tim Keller was on the cover. Uh, and I, it was a beautiful article, right, Tim Keller, right? Uh, and he was being interviewed. If you don't know Tim Keller, he's a Presbyterian minister in New York City. He's kind of the, the predominant thought leader when it comes to engaging culture uh, nowadays. Um, he says this. He's the author of... He's the author of so many good books, right? The Reason for God, um, the, the, the Prodigal God, and all those kind of, if you haven't read them, man, get to them. Um, Tim Keller is talking about hope. He's talking about hope and death. He's saying, he said, if you view the world through a purely political lens, you will have trouble making sense of your anxieties your fear of death, you, ha you will have trouble. If you view the world purely through a, a political lens, let me, let, me, let me take it further, right? Can I put my feet on your couch? All right. Conservatives will tell you, it got quiet, it's okay. <laughs> the world is getting worse. We need to go back. Let's go back to the way it was. Let's go back to the 1950s. Let's go back to somewhere else. My question is, back to where? 1950s was not great for folks like me. 1800s wasn't great for folks like me. It's getting quiet in here. It wasn't great for everybody. You understand? Um, certainly not for people like me. Dave prayed for, it, for the tragedy that happened in Atlanta this week. Asian, Asian, uh, American Asian hate has been going on. I remember three or four years ago, I went and visited a site where uh, Asian Americans were kept in this country during World War II, right? Where are we going to go back to? Liberals like to think that the world is getting better. There is a, there is a utopia ahead of us, right? For whom? They, they were saying that 50 years ago, and now here we are. Are we in utopia right now? They were saying things would get better now, right? Now there's climate issues. You follow me? We're almost always in this world on the edge of war. Food shortages, starvation, those things are, were happening when I was a kid and are still happening now. Viruses like COVID. Man, I thought we would have eradicated those things right now. Where's the utopia you promised me in 1965? The internet, technology, was supposed to get us there. It really has brought us mounds of depression and anxiety in our young people. Suicide rates, I don't know if you looked them up. Man, it's, it's, it's a thing to cry, a thing to lament, a thing to pray for. Housing prices, affordable housing, right? Water shortages. We should have been better by now. So you got one side saying we should go back, and you got one side saying we should escape and go to the future. What we cannot do is look for political answers. We are in the middle. 
right? Not looking back, not looking immediately forward, but clinging to the timeless promises of Jesus. We are in the middle, right? We are, there is a part of the middle that's actually what I call the cynical middle, right? Where it's never good, right? Where, where, where we're thinking the world, will, the world will never be good. It will never be good, so let's just eat, drink, and let's be merry. Let's, let me get mine while I'm alive. Right? There is a cynical part that said, I'm not conservative, I'm not a liberal, but I'm going to do this, right? There is a cynical middle. Let me define my worldview for me, but there is a hopeful middle. There is a hopeful middle. I'm preaching better than y'all saying amen right now. There is a hopeful middle that says pray, that says live, that says thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's where hope is. That's what we get caught in this evening and this morning. Despite it all, and despite history, despite what's headed for us, we are going to be a hopeful people. Despite the mystery that lies ahead, we're going to say hallelujah anyhow. You know why we do that? Because Jesus told you, you will never taste death. Jesus is saying all these anxieties, all this pressure, you will never taste death. In fact, you will spend eternity forever with me. I'm starting to sweat out here. I'll tell you what. The only person that can guarantee us, right, that you will not taste death is Jesus Christ. And he is the only one, not only can he promise that, but man, he can deliver that as well. Right? How do I know that? How do I know that? If you're here for the first time and you're just thinking of church, man, I'm just checking the things out. How do you know that, Marcus? Here's how I know that. He rose from the dead. Right? Jesus is who he says he is. Right? He is who he says he is. As I close this morning, let me just let me just get this morning, this afternoon. Yeah. Right? Let me just park this sermon, pull up on the side of the road. I'm gonna put it in park. I'll put it in neutral and put the handbrake up in this in this point. And then we'll close out, right? Verse 58. After they had accused Jesus all he wanted, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Lord, help me do this one right. Lord, give me, just give me the clarity of thought right now because I need to address this properly. One, one thing I need to talk about is the truly, truly first. The truly, truly, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, wrote a magnificent book on this. She's saying that when someone was in the synagogue and, and they, they, they ne- people never uttered the words truly, truly. And Jesus is just using it like that, right? He's just using it. Every time you see it, verily, verily, truly, truly. Here's what he's saying but by using those words. The, usually the elders in, in, in the Pharisees were the ones who, after a visiting preacher or somebody who would come and speak would say that, they would say, truly, truly, that word was good. Oh, man. So when Jesus said, Jesus is not even elders, Pharisees, whatever, I'm going to say truly, truly, because I know my word is true. Ooh, hmm. Hmm. Right? The impact. He's saying, this is, this is it. Let me, let me get into that. Let me get into this. 
So before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was, which is grammatically you're thinking, yeah, this is, this is what should happen in our brains, right? Before Abraham was, I was. You know why he doesn't say that? If he says, before Abraham was, I was, implies that before Abraham was, there was a point when Jesus was not. Which, if, he's, if he had said, before Abraham was, I was, they would have been like, oh, okay. That means there was a point where you were not. Thereby, you are not God. You follow? If, he was, if it was a point where he wasn't, that means he was created and not the creator. You with me? I had a light bulb moment when I became, when I was probably 10 years into being a Christian. 10 years into being a Christian, when, when this hit me, that Jesus is in the whole Bible. When, when, when I recognized that Jesus not, didn't just appear in the second half or in Matthew, like he's actually been there the entire time. So when he's saying, I am, he's saying, this is, he's saying, let's go back. Let me take you back. Right? The whole Bible. In this one statement, Jesus is explaining his present existence. From Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament, Jesus is foreshadowed. Sometimes veiled, but sometimes really plainly, right? This is how we can trust him above all else, right? In Genesis 3, when, God's tell, when God tells Abraham that your seed will crush the head of the serpent, you know who he's talking about? Go ahead and say it. Jesus. Thank you, right? When, when, when in, in 1 Chronicles 17, which was just, uh, I was just reading the Bible. First, when you're reading 1 Chronicles, you're not thinking about Jesus at that point, right? 1 Chronicles 17, God promises David something. He said, one of your descendants will build the temple and his throne will go on forever. And my mind, oh yeah, Solomon is going to build the temple. Solomon is, is David's son, but Solomon's temple doesn't go forever. You understand what I'm saying? He's not talking about Solomon, right? He's talking about someone else. He's talking about Jesus. Before Abraham was born, that's how I like to. That's how I like to when I when I do my when I do my translation from Greek. That's how I like to translate this verse. Before Abraham was born, before Abraham came into existence, I am. He could have said before Abraham I was. He could, have said, he could have said that, but he didn't. He said before Abraham was, I am. I am is present, active, indicative. Gary, you here? All right. I'm going there for you, brother. Present, active, indicative. Ego, a me, means, means this is, we're dealing with present tense here, right? He's referring to somebody in the past, but he's, dealing, he's going in present tense, right? It would, indi- yeah, it would indicate that, man, He's, 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 not, he's not adding up here. He's not making sense, right? In the front of this book, in the very first passage of this book of John, when John is writing, he says, Jesus was with God in the beginning. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of everything. He was there. When God said, let there be light, Jesus is there. Let us make man, Jesus is there, right? We don't have the language. I don't have the language. Maybe you do, Right? I speak a lot of languages, but nothing can convey what Jesus is trying to tell here about his timelessness, right? That how he never was a was, 
He's always been a is. <laughs> Excuse my grammar, but sometimes when I get excited, right? He never was a was. He always is a is. Jesus was with God in the beginning, in the beginning of everything, right? Does that sound like somebody you can trust? Yes. Absolutely, right? Let me close out with this. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. This is Moses. Moses has been in the wilderness for 40 years, and he's going back, and God calls him, and he reaches, he sees in a desert there is a burning bush. You know the story. Right? God says, I want you to be my messenger and go back to the Israelites. Go back to Pharaoh as my messenger. Make the connection to get them out of slavery. To free them from, what, from the life they've always had and give them something they've never, been, they've never seen before. Right? Moses is nervous because he knows he's going to a tough crowd. He's going to Pharaoh and his folks, right? And he's going to the Israelites who may not even remember or believe or understand what he's trying to say, right? Moses asked God, he said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of my fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What should I say? What should I say? You know what God said to him? God said this to Moses. This is so beautiful. God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. God also says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus, I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. God says, you know how I want you to remember me? Remember me that I am. When Jesus says this to the Pharisees, they understand what I am means because they know the history, right? When he says, I am is sent, so you, you follow me. He is a messenger from God. He's not only a messenger, like he's, he's tacked in with the message, just like Moses was. You making that connection? When, when, when Jesus says, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you something. I want to free you like God freed the Israelites out of slavery. They're not picking it up. I am. This is me. I am God before you. I'm telling you something that you need to listen to. I am has sent me. It's not grammatically correct, but it is theologically powerful. I am present, like he's always in the present tense, right? He's not looking backwards. He's not looking immediately forward. He, it doesn't exist. I am. The saddest part of this passage to me is the, is the last verse, their response. It says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. My brothers and sisters, when someone tells you truth, and you have no more ammunition, quote-unquote. You can't join on them. You can't do ad hominem attacks. So you, result, you resort to throwing stones. Do you throw stones at God when he tells you and he gives you a promise? Do you, do you, do you accept that you will not die? Pharisees threw stones at him. We will exalt him. We will praise him. We will honor him 
we will celebrate in him because he is our only hope. He is the one that guaranteed us life. He is the one that the only one that can deliver. He's the only he's the sustainer of our lives, fellows. He is, he is, he, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I said fellows. He is, he's the, he's the one and only. Our deliverer. When you sing songs, sing it to the to, to the God who can do things that no one else can do. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father God, in the name of Jesus. You can do all things. We will never die if we believe and we trust in you beyond all else. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word that you've, that you've placed in our hearts this afternoon. Lord, as we leave our seats and walk to our cars, may we meditate. May we keep. May we walk away and say Jesus is who he says he is. And he is my Savior. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.